You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. So good. It's good to be back actually speaking with you, not just introducing somebody else. My name is Matt Nickerson, lead pastor here at Kingsway. In case you visited with us over the last couple of weeks, we want to welcome everybody watching at home online. We're so glad you're tuning in with us today. We're in this book, Goliath Must Fall, and we have two weeks left this week on anger and next week on comfort. If you didn't get the book, we still have some copies out there in the hallway. I highly recommend it. It's really, really good. And there's some stuff I'm going to cover today that was really encouraging. Some of my favorite stuff in the whole book, we're going to cover a little bit today. I don't know about you, but it was roughly five or so years ago. Uh, I was sitting there watching TV. I might have even been the Super Bowl. I don't remember now. And all of a sudden, Betty White is in the middle of a commercial. Do you guys remember Betty White? She's going to live forever. And uh, Betty White is in the middle of a Snickers commercial as Snickers was about to do some rebranding and Snickers starts to deal with this whole hangry thing going on. Anybody else in here ever get hangry? Anybody? Anybody who didn't raise their hand is lying. Anyway, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And uh, the whole point of the Snickers thing is, right, you're hungry, eat a snack, right? So if you eat the snack, you'll, you know, your blood sugars will go back up. You'll feel better. Well, then they put out these Snicker bars that had new words on them. Did you guys ever see this? Sleepy, snippy, impatient, whiny, grouchy, feisty, spacey, loopy. This was genius, really genius, but what happened was, which by the way, I always thought it was funny. Did anybody actually go buy the one that represented how they felt in that moment? I just would have grabbed it and bought it and moved on. It was too much thinking. But what I thought was interesting about this is how many of us don't really have words to put how we're feeling into action. In fact, I'll just say many of the men that I work with in our church, um, they are amazing leaders. They are phenomenal, highly trained highly educated, highly successful, hardworking, productive men, and they struggle to find words to express what they're really feeling. All the wives in the room, this would be a good time for you to keep your elbows to yourself for just a moment. And it's not just the men. When I meet with women, I find sometimes the same thing. I remember being in a meeting with uh, a particular person and uh, I said something to the effect of, man, it seems like you're really upset about that. And the person got upset that I said that they were upset. And they said, I'm not upset. And I said, it it, it really feels like you are. (laughs) As they talked, they finally came to the word that better represented upset. I don't remember what they said. It was something like frustrated. And I thought, isn't that just upset? Like a different version of the same thing? But here's the point. I've learned a couple things. Number one, when I try to name how someone else is feeling, it frustrates them. But when somebody can't find the right word to name how they're feeling, it does what? It frustrates them. And when we can't name what we're really feeling, we stay stuck in how we're feeling and we can't really ever move past it. Whether you know this or not, most of us are behavior instinctual people. We tend to respond to the same kind of stimuli the same way over and over and over again. So when your spouse or your friend or your boss or whoever it is, your parent, makes that one comment in that one range, it evokes in you the same kind of emotion. Somewhere along the way, you learned a certain response to that stimulus. Are you with me? 
And then you keep acting that same way over and over and over again. The question for all of us ask is, is this actually helping me? Is this actually making my relationship with that person better or is it making it worse? And if it's making it worse, what would be the right way, a better way to respond when that stimulus comes? I've talked before about this covenant group that I was in, a group of other pastors uh, from all over the United States, and we would meet together twice a year, and it just ended in January, but one of the guys taught me about this thing. He called it the emotions wheel. He shared it with all of us. It looks like this. There's literally no way you're going to be able to read this or see this from there. I get that. Um, There's this whole psychology behind an emotions wheel, and I went and read way too much about it and studied it and go, yeah, I don't even know that I buy all that. So I love psychology. For those of you who are in this counseling psychology world, I'm so glad you are. I just don't know that I buy into all of it scripturally. But from this standpoint, what this wheel was really helpful for him, he was having some problems with one of his kids who was struggling to verbalize how they felt when they were having a blow-up moment. And so they would use this wheel to help locate all these big words out here and then maybe try to track back down to some internal word that they were really feeling inside themselves. And so if you were just to take this little slice of the pie here, which you may or may not be able to see, the slice of the pie here is anger. If you were to zoom it in, uh, Danielle on staff made me a new graph that looks like this that will help you be able to see what those words might look like a little better. And so if you were just to take these words and say, okay, how are you really feeling out here? You know, there's not just three emotions. There's a whole slew. In fact, the psychology world tells us there's roughly 34,000 different emotions. 34,000. Now, some of those have a lot of overlap. But if you could imagine saying, you know what? In this moment, I feel hostile. (laughs) Okay. Why do you feel that way? I don't know. I just inside, I feel really, really, really aggressive. Well, could it be that you're angry? Again, it may sound stupid to go, well, of course I'm angry. I already told you I was hostile. But some of these emotions are a little bit more hidden. Like, I just feel numb. Why do you feel numb? I don't know. Something's making me feel distant from you. What can we talk about what makes you feel distant? When you said that earlier, it made me feel stupid. It made me angry. And so the way I deal with my anger is I just pull away from you. And the more I've pulled away from you, I just, and I hear this one a lot, I just don't feel like I love you anymore. See, if we don't deal with our emotions, our emotions will deal with us. And so how do we begin to see and recognize these things? Well, I think in the book, Goliath Must Fall, I think Louis did a really good job. He said, all right, let's talk for a second about when anger has gone awry. He gives us three categories to describe this. The first one is this, wrongly felt anger. I don't know if you've ever felt wrongly felt anger. I have felt wrongly felt anger. Here's the definition. You feel angry about something that never happened. You thought somebody did or said or felt something bad. But the people didn't really do or say or feel that way. The anger is wrongly felt and sometimes wrongly acted upon too. But it's real anger in your life to be sure. You ever sit around, you see something on social media, and you wonder if that post was really directed at you? Some of y'all are laughing way too much. (laughs) You're sitting in a meeting, and somebody makes a comment, and you think to yourself, that was passive-aggressive. That was directed at me. And you might be right, but you might be wrong. 
Same thing with your spouse, same thing with your parents, same thing with your kids. And you internalize it and you believe it's, they meant that at me. Oh, oh, they didn't. I don't know who they think they are. How's the second category? Rightly felt anger that's wrongly expressed. You genuinely have something to be angry about. But the way you're expressing your anger comes out in all manner of wrong ways. Your anger blows up bridges. It damages the people around you and it damages you too. Any of you can relate with this? Any of you married to somebody like this? Don't actually respond right now. But can you understand this? Like, yeah, you were hurt. You were offended. You were attacked. Things were said about you. It wasn't okay. But your response made everything worse. You blew it up. Instead of handling it, approaching it, confronting it, dealing with it, you got bigger, louder, stronger, louder, scarier. And now everybody's afraid of you. Or how about the third category? Rightly felt anger that's never expressed. I didn't put this on the slide. I call this the knapsacker. You remember like back in the day when people would travel and they'd wear those like fanny packs? Right? Or now they're just like, they all look European and they come across the shoulder or whatever. Some people backpack this stuff and they just keep sticking stuff in there and sticking stuff in there and sticking stuff in there. And then sooner or later, the pack can't hold anymore and it just. <laughs> That's when you go from this stage back a stage. But here's what it says You're angry, but you pretend everything is fine. You stuff your anger, you never speak about it, you never address the truth of your feelings. Repressing anger can be one of the most destructive things you can do. It poses a huge health risk. Not to mention, you're living a lie. For those of you who are visiting with us for the first time, and we're really glad you're here, you may not understand exactly what we're talking about. The concept of this book, Goliath Must Fall, is in the Old Testament, we see a guy named King David, and he ends up fighting a huge giant, and his name is Goliath. And in the story, he wins with a smooth stone that he grabs, puts in a sling, throws it at the giant, hits him in the head, knocks him to the ground dead. Then he runs up, grabs the giant's sword, and lops off his head. And again, if you thought the Bible was boring, boring, you weren't reading it right. But in the story, the way that Louis is applying it to our lives then is we all have these Goliaths in our lives. And for some of us, anger is a profound Goliath one that takes over and runs and ruins our relationships. And we can literally point to the moments and the people and the bodies and the situations behind us. Anger has an intoxicating thing about it. It makes us feel powerful. In a literal sense, anger can activate all of these systems in your body that cause you to respond. In fact, anger can be a really good thing in the woods if a bear sneaks up on you. And you've got to decide whether to fight or to flight. And that kind of emotional response is extremely helpful. It is not helpful when your three-year-old is throwing a tantrum because he's tired and you're thinking, do I beat them or do I run away? And neither one is a good response. But you can see how it gets triggered in you. 
So if we truly believe that Goliath was defeated and that anger is a Goliath in our life and that Jesus represents David and Jesus has defeated anger and wants you to walk in freeness and walk in victory, what would Jesus say to us about anger? And here's sometimes the most frustrating thing. You read passages where the Bible says something about anger and it just moves on as if, okay, I'm supposed to easily apply that. Let's take a look at the first one. James chapter one, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Stop there for a second. If you've never heard that verse and you're hearing it for the first time, that one will catch you off guard, won't it? Wow. But just for a second, how different would your relationships be if you were to actually be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry? Notice it doesn't say don't get angry. There is an appropriate time and place for anger. The problem is human anger doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. So if I'm going to get angry, it better be a spirit-driven, holy from God anger that burns against evil and then desires to help people. I talked about this on Christmas Eve, and if you were with us, then you may have heard this, but if you weren't, it's okay. The Bible teaches this really crazy offensive message that we, me and all of you and everybody watching at home, we are all enemies of God. At least that's what we were before Jesus came in and wrote a new story into our lives. Our sin, our rebellion against God put us opposing God. So God, instead of his anger, the Bible often calls this the wrath of God, instead of God taking out his anger, taking out his wrath and just destroying us and decimating us, instead in love, he sent his son, Jesus, to come down here, teach us a better way than die on the cross for our sins in our place so that God's wrath would be poured out on him instead of on us. And then he says, now you go do the same. And that is the root of how these passages could say, human anger doesn't produce the righteousness God desires. God desires to produce something different in you. He modeled it in Jesus. So what exactly is that? Well, Ephesians 4 verse 30 says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Let's just stop there for a second. This first part sets up the how. Like, okay, this sounds great, but when people are coming at me and attacking me and lying about me, this is how I feel. But the way that I get over it is not by trying harder. The way that I get over it is just, not just by naming my emotions. The way that I get over it is by partnering with the Holy Spirit. See, the, the gospel summarized is not only did Jesus do that for you, but when he rose from the dead <clears throat> and went up into heaven, he then sent behind him the Spirit of God so that those of us who walk with God by faith 
We are filled with God inside us. And there is a war going on inside you. Do you remember the old like uh, Warner Brothers cartoons? Or even uh, Gronk, I'm trying to remember what the, uh, the Emperor's New Groove, which is a little bit older now, but still a really funny cartoon. There's that moment where you've got like the little devil sitting on one side, right? And the little angel sitting on the other. And they're like having this conversation. And it's like, which one do I listen to? This used to be really popular in older cartoons. That whole idea actually comes right out of scripture. Paul, who wrote this in Ephesians, talks about that very thing in Ephesians and in another book called Galatians. And what he says is, your flesh desires one thing. The spirit desires another. And the spirit is at war with your flesh so that you will not act how you want to, but instead will act how the spirit wants you to. That's the idea here. Not, come on, fix this. Let's go, get it together. What's wrong with you? Instead, it's, man, the Holy Spirit is in you, creating a new you, changing you. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. This is the thing I want you to grab. We did a thing on the Holy Spirit about a little over a year ago now. I just want you to get this real quick. I cannot grieve a thing. I grieve a person. The Holy Spirit is the personhood of God in me. And how do I grieve the Holy Spirit? By listening to my flesh, by yelling and hitting and cussing and lying by brawling and slander and fighting and raging, by raising up and acting out in these ways because they don't represent who Jesus is. That's why Paul goes on in verse 32 and he says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. How did God act toward you when you treated him poorly? Did he destroy you? No. He sent his son to win you back. Does that mean he didn't speak the truth in love? Oh, absolutely. He spoke the truth in love. But he was kind and compassionate when you deserved anger and wrath. You may not know this, but if you're visiting with us, our mission as a church, you know, everybody's got like a mission today, right? Our mission is to become more like Jesus. And this one in particular, this is hard for me. Even one of my kids was asking me, asking me the other day, like, Dad, how do you do this? Like, how are you so good at this? And I had to laugh because I'm thinking, buddy, I'm not great at this. But the Matt Nickerson that they're seeing today at 44 is way different than the Matt Nickerson at 18 or 20 or 23 or 25 or 30. And while anger was never my thing, it was, it was, like, it was not my number one response, I definitely had and still at times can have moments where I feel weak and in my flesh, I want to act out. I spent a lot of money over the last, I don't know, 10 years meeting with different counselors for different reasons to help get better, to get stronger, to get almost like a coach, like help me figure this thing out. One of the things I learned in there is there's actually a nerve called the polyvagal nerve. And I'm no expert in this for those of you who are. So forgive me for being a hack and trying to communicate what I learned. There's actually a nerve that attaches to the bottom of your brain stem. And it goes like down your spine and it's got these fingers that come out and they attach to your jaw, they attach to like your throat, they attach to like your chest and like your stomach. And it's part of that fight or flight response. Have you ever had somebody do something that made you angry and you literally felt heat go up the back of your spine to the back of your head? Have you felt that before? 
That's the polyvagal nerve. You ever notice um, when you're talking and something excitable happens, your voice goes up? You ever having a healthy conversation with someone you love and they do that thing, they say that thing, and all of a sudden your voice goes, that's because your polyvagal nerve just got activated. And you just went, oh no, you didn't. I don't know who you think you are. That's what's going on. You ever feel yourself get literally sick to your stomach when something happens? It's the polyvagal nerve messing with you. Now, here's the thing. God put that nerve in your body for a reason. Again, if you come across a bear in the woods, you need that bad boy. But if you come across a person that you love and want a healthy relationship, it's not a good guide for how to act next. I need a new guide. And Jesus wants to lead you in that new way. So sometimes it's helpful to recognize what's going on in my body, what's going on in my mind, what's going on in my heart. The question I found that I had to start asking is, what am I afraid of right now? And what I found is most of the fears, remember how I said a few weeks ago, if you were here, fear is, I'm convinced that fear is like the cause of most of our bad decisions. This would be a great example. And what I found is when I start acting out of fear, sometimes anger is the way it comes out in me and it's not healthy. It's not healthy for anybody around me. And I have to learn how I'm feeling, name how I'm feeling, and then wrestle with the spirit and say, is this an appropriate response? Is this holy anger, Father? What would be the right way for me to reflect you to the people that I'm dealing with in this situation? In the book, Life Must Fall, Louis Giglio says, this is just phenomenal stuff. He said, here's a question for you. If our good shepherd leads us, and if his goodness and love follow us, all the days of our lives, then why would we as his sheep ever feel the need to watch our backs? That kind of thinking doesn't come from the shepherd, but from the enemy camped at our table. The paranoia bred by the enemy quickly causes us to assume a defensive posture, believing that everyone is out to get us. Soon this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy as we mistrust and attack everyone around us. Years ago, uh, I heard a pastor use an illustration, and I've used it many times in many different ways, and I've changed it over the years. But when I lash out and attack somebody, I force God to have a response. Did you know that? If I lash out and literally hit or hurt somebody, or even verbally hit or hurt somebody, or even do it behind their back, God will take up compassion. He will literally go to them and care for their wounds. He'll clean them up and love them. And this will enrage you because you'll be looking at God bless another person that you know has done evil or wrong to you and think to yourself, that's not fair, God. Why do they get the good stuff and I'm over here suffering? But if I do the opposite, if I take up the towel of compassion myself and I show love and mercy to those who have hurt me and wronged me, if I forgive people when they have sinned against me, then what happens is I put God in a position to be my defender. I put God in a position to act out the other side of who he is. See, God is unbelievably compassionate and kind, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love that comes right out of the Old Testament over and over and over and over again to describe God. 
But when I take up God's role of defense, when I take up God's role of wrath, when I take up God's position of action, I force his hand a little bit to show compassion in a place where he wanted to show justice. Louis comes back and he says this, I better get them before they get me, we think. And with hands clenched and a suspecting lens that turns every look into a glare and every unintended lack of notice into a hateful snub, we begin to take on the world. Soon we are caught in a downward spiral of mudslinging that's completely contrary to the gospel of grace that empowers us to love real enemies and turn the other cheek. Did you know that Jesus actually says when you're struck on the cheek to turn the other cheek? And he didn't mean the other cheek. He meant turn the other cheek. And this has baffled pastors, theologians, scholars for years. I've heard people do some fancy finagling with this text to mean something it doesn't mean. The simplest terms, Jesus is not saying stay there in an abusive marriage and let the person keep beating on you. That is not what it means. But what it does mean is that when somebody comes at you, instead of attacking back, you're finding a way to fix the relationship. And again, this takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of godly people to help discern. That might mean removing you for a season. You see this in Matthew 18, where it says if somebody sins against you, you go and confront them. And if they confess, repent, great, you've won them back. But if they don't, then you take somebody else with you. And if they still won't confess and repent, then you take them before the church. If they still won't confess and repent, then you have the church remove them from fellowship. They kicked out. They're no longer welcome among us. And people are like, whoa, that's not very loving for a church to do. Oh, it's extremely loving for the person who keeps getting abused. Do you see this? The goal is that I would build a bridge for you to walk across, but if you don't and you're going to keep abusing me, I'm going to keep fighting for the restoration of the relationship. At the point where it's obvious you will not restore the relationship, the church must protect those who are in danger. And that's where it takes a community of people together walking in this. But notice what I'm doing with my anger the whole time. I'm neither ignoring what is real and running away from it, nor am I lashing out and attacking you. I'm continuing to get help and get help and get help and build bridges and build bridges and do everything I can, each time submitting and surrendering myself to another group in order for them to help guide us and lead us. Because you know what? There's a chance I think I'm right and you're wrong. And then somebody else comes in and goes, man, I, I gotta tell you the truth. I think you're wrong too. But it takes wisdom. It takes discernment. It's hard to flesh this stuff out. So why would we turn the other cheek? The short answer, even though it's really a long answer, the short answer is because God is with you. David, who's the same David who slung that stone at Goliath, David wrote a psalm that we love to read at funerals. In fact, I did our after Christmas sermon on the psalm, and there's one part of this I didn't focus on in that video, but I wanna focus on right now. Psalm 23, verse one, it says this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. 
Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you, that's God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a whole sermon series waiting for me to write it. So let me do an injustice to it by only focusing on a few things. Number one, the greatest texts of the Bible all point to Jesus. So whatever David is going through mirrors the life of Jesus in the future. We see this in things like Psalm 22, where literally he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus literally says it hanging on the cross. And we call it one of the messianic Psalms. And this one would be no different. You could read this from Jesus in his life, in his ministry, and you go, wow, was this David or was this Jesus? And that's just the power of God at work. But even in David's life, whatever he's going through, we aren't 100% sure, but it's heavy and it's hard to the point where he's got enemies. David was often running from his life, hiding in caves because people were pursuing him. Do you think that ever made him angry? I guarantee you it did. You can actually read it in the stories. David doesn't hide his emotions well. Of course it did. But in this moment, what David is doing is he's saying, even though I'm going through this, notice God didn't remove the problem. God is the one leading David and God's going with David through the problem. He's not taking it away. This is not going to leave you, David. But neither am I. His rod and his staff comfort me. The rod and the staff would have been used to defend against the lion and the tiger and the bear. The rod and the staff also would have been used to correct or corral, or possibly you might use the phrase discipline, the sheep after it gets out of the way. It would have been the visual image along with the voice of the shepherd to lead and to guide. The oil would have been used to bind up the wounds. But the one that's always baffled me, and if you go back and watch, I'm pretty sure the Sunday after Christmas this year, I kind of just avoided this conversation altogether because I don't always know what to do with it. It's the verse, let's see, it's verse uh, five. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This particular part has always baffled me because I don't know about you, I don't have a lot of enemies. You may be different. I know there are people who don't like Matt Nickerson. I hear rumors about that all the time. <laughs> and I know that I have a spiritual enemy who hates me and I hear his voice far too often. Sometimes I listen. But what exactly does this mean? I don't know how to connect with this. And Louis made a phenomenal point in the book, and this really struck me. In order to feast with somebody, there's time, investment, and relationship. And what David is celebrating is in the midst of my problem, in the midst of my struggle, God sets up, sets up a table for me in the presence of my enemies, whoever or whatever you're facing, God wants to dine with you in the middle of it. He's not gonna leave you. He's not gonna forsake you. He's not gonna run away from you. He's not gonna abandon you. He's not gonna quit on you. He's not taking it away either. But right there in the middle of it is Jesus. 
And the good news is it's all you need. The great news is it's all you need. So that whatever you are literally facing, he's with you. That's how David comes to the conclusion in verse six. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What's the worst that could happen? Your enemy crushes you. Your company closes. You lose your house. They kill you. I'm gonna go be with Jesus. I don't wanna leave my family behind, but don't get me wrong. I'm ready to go be with Jesus. If he's ready to come back today, I'm ready to go be with Jesus. Are you? See, David, in the midst of the most painful and terrifying situations in his life, looks forward to his last day because he knows it's not gonna be dramatically different than today. It's just there won't be an enemy anymore. Again, Louis in the book, I think, says it excellently. He says, we're sitting at the table with the creator of the world. Even if everyone is against us, and they usually are not, Christ's table provides all we need to make it through this season of life, thriving right in their line of sight. And it's with that in mind that Paul goes on in Ephesians 4 and he says, in your anger do not sin. Notice he doesn't say, don't be angry. Anger is a natural emotion. It's what happens when you've been wronged. But when you're angry, don't sin. And then he goes even further. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. What is, my wife and I, the way that we practice this, it's not that my wife and I don't ever fight. She's got a really stubborn husband. It's that if we kind of blow up late at night, and we're too tired to deal with it, or maybe our blood sugars are low, or it's just been too much that's happened in the day, and we're wise enough now, 21 years in, to know it's not gonna go well, we still will look at each other and say, I love you. Let's sleep on this tonight. Let's work it through tomorrow until you finally admit you're wrong, okay? (laughs) Usually that's both of us saying it to the other one, just to be clear. I don't want to go to bed and have Satan having a foothold. And neither do you. Because you know what happens when you get angry? If you act on that bad boy, a whole lot of bad things happen. Deception, rage, sinful behaviors, private addictions. Some of you know really well what can happen. And then the worst case is you can justify it. Well, if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have needed to do this. And all you're doing is destroying yourself and your relationships. And Louis says it best, don't give the enemy a seat at your table. The table was supposed to be a feast for you and your father. Satan doesn't belong there. I don't know where this lands with everybody. I don't know if you have an anger issue, perhaps like me. Maybe you've come a really long way and you have further to go. Maybe you have a long way to go and you don't know how to get there. What I know is this. 
the best psychology can do for you today is help you locate your feelings and try harder. They can help you see patterns and break the patterns. But the reality is to truly live a sacrificial love, a mercy that reflects God on the earth, you're gonna need more than a psychologist. You're gonna need the spirit of God inside you. You cannot, you literally cannot do this on your own. And if right now you're experiencing this, I wanna call you into a relationship with Jesus right now. Right now. I don't do this often, but I'm gonna do it right now. If you are somebody who needs Jesus, I'm gonna pray a prayer. And I'm just gonna ask, and we all close our eyes, that you raise your hand if this is you. And just say, I need Jesus. I need Jesus to help me with my anger. I need Jesus to save me. I need Jesus to fix this thing. I don't know what to do with. And we're gonna invite God into the space right now. And he's listening. He's paying attention. Ready? Let's all close our eyes. Heavenly Father, this message is real and it's raw. God, there's some of us who are just barely lifting a finger because that's all we feel bold enough to do. And there's some of us, God, who are proclaiming it loudly. We need you. And God, whether we're legitimately hurt or whether we think everybody's talking about us, whether we've made it worse or maybe we're the problem, we need you. So God, I pray first right now, I pray for those who have never given their lives to you. They've never prayed a prayer of faith. They've never taken the step to be united with you in baptism. They've never done this. I pray, God, right now that you would come in with your bright light and shine in their hearts, open their eyes and hearts and minds to you. May they receive Jesus right now. In fact, right now, we pray for those who are praying this prayer that they would receive Jesus. We receive you, Jesus, as our Lord and our Savior. Come in, forgive us of our sins. Refresh us and renew us with your Holy Spirit. We repent of our sin, of our anger and our rage and our malice and our slandering and our brawling. We repent of all of it. We give it to you, God. And we ask right now that you fill us with the Holy Spirit and teach us a new way. And God, for those who have already done it, I pray, God, that you would help us to lay down our lives, take up our crosses and follow after you. Prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies that we would have faith to know you are good all the time and we could trust you. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Now listen, there's a little bit more I wanna tell you. If you're sitting out there and you've never received Jesus, here's, what does it look like to receive Jesus? It begins with faith. It begins with a decision in your heart and your mind. It may begin with that prayer right there. You may be watching at home and you've never done this. But the next thing you need to do is you need to unite with Christ in baptism. My son got baptized. My second one got baptized on Friday. Right here, yeah, in that baptistry. Christo. We've been having these conversations for years and what's really crazy is um, I went golfing with my buddy Gary that morning and he had to leave and go to work and so I just finished the back nine, walked it and prayed and I prayed for two things that day and both of them happened. One of them was praying for my kids that they would receive Jesus. My kids know Jesus. They love Jesus. They sing songs about Jesus. They understand some things about Jesus better than I do sometimes. But they hadn't actually taken that step and my second one said, I'm in, I'm ready, let's do this. And that's the thing. It can't just be up here. It has to act 
itself out. And it begins in those waters. If you're ready for that, if you've never done that, just text the number 317-565-4911. Put the word connect in there. We will respond to you. You can go to our Connect Hub immediately following the service. And we will help you get baptized. In fact, we've got one at 11 o'clock today. So in the next service, you can stick around and watch it with us. But what I encourage you to do is don't do this on your own. You don't have it in you. And I'm not knocking you. You're amazing. It's just that God didn't put it in you yet until you give your life to him. Now, what we're gonna do is come into a time of communion. So if you'll take out your bread and your juice. What we're celebrating when we take communion is the fact that Jesus already died on the cross and rose from the dead. And the juice represents the blood of Jesus and the bread represents the body of Jesus. And if you think that's weird, so did everybody else throughout history. But what we are eating and drinking is our connection to the grace and the mercy of God. The strength, the literal presence of God. So I'm gonna start a prayer and I'm gonna hand it to you. And whatever it is you need to bring to the Lord, whatever business you need to do with him, whatever you need to handle with him, take this time. Invite him into your story. Ask him for mercy and forgiveness. But then do not end your prayer with shame and guilt, end your prayer with confidence that on the cross, Jesus paid it all. Let's pray. Father, right now we meet you in this place and in this time. God, come feast with us. As we drink this juice and eat this bread, we remember that Jesus paid it all. So all to him I owe. God, we, we just ask for your strength today. Take our junk, give us your life, refresh us and renew us and restore us in Jesus' name.